For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. He lines up customers and he shoots and kills a young woman that he doesn't even know. A young mother. A terrible, terrible thing. And then he holds everybody else hostage. And just because it's at a bank, he didn't come in to get money. He didn't come in to bargain. He came in probably ultimately to kill his wife and kill himself. On this episode of Insightful Inquiries, we have Gary Nessner, who retired from the FBI following a 30-year career as an investigator, instructor, and negotiator. He was an FBI hostage negotiator for 23 years, retiring as the chief of the FBI's Crisis Negotiation Unit Critical Incident Response Group, the first person to hold that position. He was heavily involved in numerous crisis incidents covering prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs, religious zealot sieges, terrorist embassy takeovers, airplane hijackings, and over 120 overseas kidnapping cases involving American citizens. Following his retirement from the FBI, he became a senior vice president with Control Risks, an international risk consultancy assisting clients in managing overseas kidnap incidents. He continues to consult independently and speaks at law enforcement conferences and corporate gatherings around the world. Gary's book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, was written about his FBI negotiation career and was published by Penguin Random House in 2010. The book was used in part as the basis for the Emmy-nominated six-part miniseries on Waco that debuted on the Paramount Network in 2018. That miniseries can be purchased on Amazon Prime, Google Play, and various other streaming services. Gary has three grown children and resides in Virginia with his wife, Carol. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, welcome Gary Nessner to the podcast. How are you doing, Gary? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Oh, thank you for coming on. Gary Nestor's a retired FBI hostage negotiator, and more importantly, he wrote the book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator. Yep. So, yep. Gary, how you doing? I'm doing great, you know, living large, you know, retirement's a good time of life, you know, do a little work and a little relaxation and no complaint. Sounds good. Would you like to give just a, a bit of a background? on yourself and, and, and how you got into being a hostage negotiator for the FBI. Yeah, I spent 30 years in the FBI. I, I started in 1972 and retired in, in January 2003. And, you know, it's something I'd always wanted to do since I was a kid, become an FBI agent. And I was fortunate my dream came true, but very early, very beginning of my career, the FBI had begun to embrace this new concept originally started in New York called hostage negotiations and uh, quickly realized that it was a, a pretty effective tool to use in managing a, a pretty wide range of crisis events, particularly hostage situations, barricades, suicides. And so the FBI, more so then, but even today, plays a pretty big role in providing law enforcement training around the United States. So we began to teach it and to expand on, on its understanding and kind of pay paid the trail on, on some, you know, aspects of it. And uh, so I did that at part-time in addition, being an investigator, you know, spending a good bit of my career working terrorism and hijackings and so forth in the Middle East. And, and then in 1990, I became a full-time negotiator. And then after of only, only two of us in the FBI at the time, and we managed 350 FBI negotiators who were part-time around the country. 
Yeah, uh, and after the Waco incident in 93, the FBI recognized that we needed to expand the negotiation program, so they created a standalone unit, and I was named the first unit chief. And I did that until my retirement. So, so I guess I was the chief negotiator for the FBI for the last 10 years of my career. Well, that's impressive, well, that's and I guess that speaks to your, to your work as a hospital well, negotiator. You know, hopefully that I learned some things along the way and, and, and had more successes than not, but you know, it's, it's always something I, I felt passionate about. I, I always liked the concept of using interpersonal communication skills to resolve conflict. And part of that was maybe in keeping with my natural personality, but, but then I learned a great deal along the way and got to see how it worked as we applied it in real life situations. So we're, you know, as I mentioned, hijacking and kidnappings and bank robbery situations and prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs and some international things as well. So had a very interesting, varied career. And then, you know, then I retired, became a consultant for some years for an international risk consultancy. And then I wrote my book and now I do corporate speaking and occasional law enforcement training and I've been involved uh, more recently in a bunch of TV projects, including the big uh, Paramount Network Waco series that is now still available on Amazon and was played by Michael Shannon, the uh, twice Academy Award nominated actor. Incredibly by Michael Shannon. And and listening to you talk now, and, and I'm, I'm, all the listeners go, you know, it's on Amazon right now. Watch the miniseries because listening to Michael Shannon and then listening to you, it's just incredible. Like, yeah, he did yeah. a fantastic job. He's a phenomenal actor. And he, he didn't try to imitate me, you know, like Taylor Kitsch was in it and he imitated David Koresh and did so brilliantly. But Mike didn't try to imitate me per se, but he certainly captured my philosophy and my demeanor and approach. And we became friends and they're actually going to make a second and third season. So I'll be engaging with him again, do some filming starting this year. Oh, that's awesome. Because I was going to ask you about that. I did see that they are expanding on that series. And I was going to ask if you did have uh, any input on that. So it's good to hear that they're still uh, letting you get some input on that because the series is just fantastic. The book is maybe one of my favorite books. I, I really enjoy it. I, I love the personal aspects, you know, how, how you met your wife, Carol. That was, that really, I loved it. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. I mean, it's, you know, the book's a, a, about my personal journey, but more importantly, it sort of uh, summarizes how negotiations as a discipline involved in law enforcement and in the FBI. And then I profile any number of cases I worked that, that help explain the process and, and usually the great things that come from it. You know, there's tragedies like Waco that we learn from as well. But, you know, overall, being able to be involved in situations where you help save people's lives is, is pretty fulfilling. Yes, that, that's very true. As, as someone who went from, so just my background a little bit, because I'm sure you don't know, but I, I was the intelligence analyst for the Army. I worked with the soft guys over at Bragg, and I spent a lot of my life attacking the enemy. And, and now I'm really working on the side with personnel recovery. Uh, so it's a totally different aspect to it because you're, yeah. you're now trying to save lives as, as opposed to trying to take out lives. And I kind of wanted to touch on your experience with the with hijacking and, and international terrorism. Is that similar to what you were doing as a, or, or what you started doing as a hostage negotiator? Yeah, I mean, very much. So. I mean, not, of course, not every act of terrorism in, involves hostage taking or negotiations, but there's some that do. And a lot of people, I think, um, have a preconceived notion about terrorists and how they're supposed to act. And oftentimes that 
that's an erroneous uh, perception. I mean, terrorism isn't a personality type. It's, it's a tactic. You know, you're dealing with people that in the early days when I was working Middle East hijacking, it was sort of the gang that couldn't shoot straight. I mean, they're, they're pretty incompetent guys set as cannon fodder by their manipulative leaders. Right. Obviously, things have gotten more sophisticated to where we get to 9-11 and, and, and some of the terrible uh, kidnappings and beheadings in the Middle East that we've seen. I worked the Danny Pearl case and, and, and some of those other high-profile matters. But, you know, I also worked Lockerbie. I worked at the embassy siege in Peru. You know, so I've, I've had a chance to interact with a lot of different types of terrorists. And the major difference in a terrorist event is, is not so much the dynamics of the communication effort, but it's more the complexity of the response. Because now, instead of just a, a more concentrated police management response, FBI response, now you've got governments and multiple governments and, and uh, different layers. And, and, of course, politicians always have a compelling reason to be seen as being involved in terrorism. And oftentimes, it can make life more complicated, not necessarily right. help. So I, I often said that you know my job is often more critically to negotiate with internally than, than it was with the bad guys. You know, so that's part of the lessons we learned as well. Right. So can you expound on like, what's the difference between if you're, you're negotiating a terrorist hijacking as opposed to someone like David Koresh, who's basically got a following in his compound? Is, is there a difference that you, you attack that? The, the difference is what, you know, I always try to tell people, don't focus on who you think the person is. What we need to focus on is what they're trying to accomplish. You know, if it's, you know, a lot of the terrorism cases we work kidnappings of Americans in South America, they were done by terrorist groups like the FARC or the ELN, or in the Philippines, the Abu Sayyaf. But if they were just after money, which was most often the case, then there's really not much strategic difference in managing them than if it's just a criminal gang. I mean, it's a pretty quid pro quo bargaining. You know, they want money and they have a commodity, a human being, they threaten to kill them and they want money. And in that is a recipe for success because if they hold a hostage, it's not like they can go sell that hostage somewhere else if they don't like dealing with you. If you're right. a, a, you know, a company or a family trying to get your loved one out, you know, they can't say, well, you, you know, we're not enjoying negotiating with you, so we'll see if we can sell your loved one to somebody else. I mean, it's, it just doesn't work that way. So, right. in other words, you could say, in essence, that both parties need each other. You know, you need the bad guys to release the victim and they need you to pay them the money. So as challenging as that can be, and it, and it certainly can be, but there is in that mix a recipe for success. You come to an accommodation and they don't get what they want and you pay more than you would prefer to pay. But ultimately that's, that's how most are resolved. It gets complicated when the demands become political because, you know, then a family or a company can't address those and a government can't be seen as capitulating to terrorism. So that's where it gets quite complicated. But if we're dealing with this sort of a, a quid pro quo bargaining interaction, you know, then the prognosis for success, sometimes it takes a great deal of time, but the prognosis for success is generally favorable. Right. So in the, like the pre-negotiation, the pre-hostage negotiation scenario, when you're, when you're talking to your team, does that, what's that conversation like? Are you, are you asking, you know, what's the intel on that? What, what do we know about this person? Where sure, he, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you take a, if you want to talk about kidnappings, right? You know, I, I don't know, I haven't read the current statistics, but for quite a few years, Mexico and Mexico City is the number one kidnap venue in the world. 
Now, whether as a corporate representative or a government representative or a family representative, you're responding to a kidnapping. What is helpful to know is what are the expectations of the kidnappers? Right. What do they expect to get in this part of Mexico or Colombia or Africa, wherever you're Philippines, wherever you're dealing, what have they gotten for other Westerners in terms of a payout? You know, what have they asked for and what have they ended up settling for? That gives you a, a fairly good sense of a, a road roadmap, you know, what, because what they ask for is often irrelevant, you know, in much of the world, they, they ask for the moon in the sky and they settle for something quite less, you know, in right. the West, we, we tend not to have those wild swings, you know, in terms of what each side wants. But once you know what they expect, then you can develop a strategy that gets you to that point in the quickest number of moons, the shortest amount of time to get your personnel alive. You don't want to overpay. That would encourage more kidnapping. And certainly the kidnappings that I was involved in with the FBI, we, you know, we always had the goal first and foremost to getting the personnel alive. And then we tried to develop information that would allow us to identify and if not immediately, but at some point arrest and prosecute kidnappers. When, when I was a young FBI agent, there was a fair amount of kidnappings for ransom in the United States. It's an almost her, unheard of crime now. Uh, right. There's FBI agents who've spent their whole career and never worked to kidnap for ransom. When, when I was a young agent, we had them quite frequently. The problem is now with the sophistication of surveillance equipment and and other issues and, and the amounts of money they're asking for, it's a real conundrum for them to get the money and to do it without us getting them. So a lot of smart criminals have moved away to other crimes. And, and in the United States, ever since the Lindbergh case, we've always viewed kidnapping very seriously. So if you're caught for kidnapping, even if the victim doesn't die, you know, you're looking at a substantial prison sentence. In Mexico, the chances of being caught are very negligible if you're caught be successfully prosecuted, even less likely to serve any decent time is even more or less likely to the point being that you see kidnappings flourish in those countries where there is corrupt police, incompetent police, poor judicial systems, poor prosecution, prison. That's where kidnap flourishes in the Western world. It's a rare crime because the consequences are so great for the kidnapper. And that's a good thing for us, but sort of addresses. I, I remember when I used to train kid, negotiators for kidnapping, they would say, oh, I, when do we get to work those cases in Paris and London? And I'm saying, <laughs> you know, well, I, I'm waiting for those myself, you know, because. That, uh, that's what I said in my career, because I was all through Africa and, yeah, exactly. and you know, Southwest yeah. Asia. And it's like, when, yeah. when do I get to go? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're more likely to go to, Am- I mean, to go to Somalia than you are Amsterdam, you know, so. In, right. In, but it's just the way it is. That creates all kinds of challenges. But again, if you go back to what I said earlier and you think about what are they trying to achieve, don't worry about who they are. Worry about what they want. And and that's because all too often, and you know from the work you've done, that even government officials that you would think would know better have a tendency to overreact when the word terrorism is thrown out there. You know, uh, Oh yeah, definitely any number of situations where it's just a mentally disturbed person. But if somebody said, oh my God, he's from the Middle East and he's a terrorist, it would change everything, primarily in the context of the response. Now, instead of just a, a small team of investigators and negotiators, now you'd have you know, the military and, and, and law enforcement and government and you know, the White House being briefed. And it, it, just, it just changes everything. 
So I'm not sure if that answered your question. But- oh, definitely did. It it definitely did. And and it leads to the next one because your your book is stalling for time. And, and I think that's the main point you're trying to make through the book is that to be successful, we, we kind of need to stall for time. And, and can you explain what your belief in that is? Like, what? why are you stalling for time? What are you trying to accomplish? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's not that we're trying to purposefully elongate the situation far from it. But what we have found out that even in situations where the person is calm, cool, and collected and sinister, still we know that time has so many advantages for us. Now, for example, you know, we had the big situation in Texas yes, uh, yes. two weeks ago at the synagogue. And, and I wrote something on LinkedIn that's had now over 20,000 views that, that basically said, you know, let's give credit to the negotiators, number one, to management for being patient but to the negotiators for buying time, because in buying time, they allowed for the hostage rescue team to deploy. They allowed for intelligence to be gathered, blueprints for the building, interviews of people that knew the perpetrator. You know, this guy had come from London. It gave, gives you time to reach out to the London police. Tell us about this guy. What do we know about it? Let's talk to his family. Time for them to release a hostage that was able to tell us what was going, them what was, I shouldn't say us, what, tell them what was going on inside. And ultimately, uh, sufficient time for the hostages themselves to discern a pattern of behavior, perhaps vulnerability, inattentiveness, whatever it might be, that led them to believe that they could pull off an escape attempt. It always has bothered me when the situation has to be resolved tactically, and they do sometimes. It, it always seems to justify that. Law enforcement spokesmen will say, the negotiations failed, so we had to go in and get them. Well, negotiations never fail. Sometimes the perpetrator fails to make the right decision, right. but the negotiations bought time. You know, for example, you know, if there was a plane load of terrorists at JFK airport tonight, the FBI would negotiate. Now, ultimately, they might have to assault that aircraft to try to rescue. But I guarantee you, assaulting a plane after eight hours of preparation is going to be infinitely more successful than if you have to show up and do it right away without any knowledge of, you know, what's going on inside. So... These are some of the arguments I make that, you know, negotiation should always be our default. I mean, we have a philosophy in law enforcement in the United States that we don't always live up to, but our philosophy is we use no more force than is absolutely necessary. Right. And I always say that the perpetrator or perpetrators make the ultimate decision on how it will end. Do they cooperate? Do they do the right thing? Or do they become more violent and force our hand? As negotiators, we're on a dual track, we're trying to convince them that they're really not going to accomplish their goals and that the best way for them to live through this experience is to cooperate and surrender. But if we know that's not going to be successful, then we are at the same time helping soften that target for our tactical personnel so that when they do have to go in, they have the highest chance of being successful. So is that the ultimate goal is, and taking out the aspect of everybody just being kumbaya, leaving everybody's out of the building, you get the perpetrator, you can arrest him and put him or her on trial. Taking that out of the equation, what's the ultimate goal that a negotiator is is trying to get to? Save lives. I mean, it, 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 it's always come down to that. That's what we're trying to achieve. And if you want to know the truth. We do. We really do, Gary. <laughs> the public always thinks we are just totally fixated on saving the hostages. And that is our goal. But the number one goal is that we don't needlessly lose the lives of police officers. You know, again, my job when I was doing it was 
to try to resolve a situation so we didn't have to expose officers to high risk so they could go home at night to their families. Now, I can't play God. I can't turn back the hands of time and say, don't take hostages and, you know, I would never let this happen. But it's happened and we've responded to it now. My job is to try to make sure it doesn't get worse and to try to resolve it by all means so that we don't have to expose people to risk. Now, sometimes we do. Uh, statistically, we found that negotiations resolved 90 plus percent of all situations, including, you know, high, high, you know, high level events, uh, even involved in terrorism, you know, so we have to be patient and use all of our skills and use all the tools in our toolbox. But Gary, you're saying that the United States negotiates with terrorists and I've heard the United States does not negotiate with terrorists. And now I'm being quite facetious there, but we do as, as a country negotiate. We do, we should, and we always have. Now, negotiating does not mean capitulation. It doesn't well, that's, a, mean that's an excellent term there. Yeah, it doesn't mean acquiescing to their demands. I mean, I, I'll go back to my hypothetical plane load of terrorists at JFK airport. There's five of them. They're holding 200 people on an airplane, and they want, you know, the prisoners released from Guantanamo, and they want the United States to you know, pull out of the Middle East or whatever the demand is, you know, you can't really achieve it. But to say, because we don't intend to give them what they want, we're not going to talk to them makes absolutely no sense. And, and so there never has been, it, it, it politicians sort of self-restricted themselves by using this term. I think it started under Reagan. We wouldn't negotiate with terrorists. Well, we wouldn't, we wouldn't capitulate to terrorist demands is what it, it was, what the policy is. Yeah. That's, you know, a, that's a way better phrase to say. And we have to talk about substantive demands. Let's say this hypothetical planet terrorists say, we've been on here six hours. Everybody's hungry. If you give us some food, will you let, we'll let two dozen hostages go. Are we going to make that trade for food? Of course we are. Why not? If they say, you know, it's one of, one of the larger demands that is, is what they're demanding for food, then that's probably not going to happen. But you know, if we can, if we can make some concessions that don't really weaken our bargaining position and don't really harm us. Well, why not? Yeah, and, and, and I definitely agree. And so now moving on from, from talking about negotiating with, with terrorists and things like that, uh, one, of the, one of the great stories in your book is the, the police officer, Louvier, who is from Homa, Louisiana, which is my wife's hometown. And oh, I'm from around there, yes. Yeah, so so she, she knows the story, but he was a police officer, right? And he yeah. initially pulled over his wife at one point to give her some papers and she contacted his unit and there was some discretion there. And then he went into a bank and basically took the bank hostage, which I think you consider more of a crisis negotiation than a hostage negotiation. But what's the yeah, thought process really in that as a police officer when, when he is somebody that should be more pro to the FBI side? Well, it was really a local matter. We were helping out, but, but, you know, it, this was Todd Louvier, the right. perpetrator in this case was, was a police officer and obviously was having uh, a personal crisis, you know, probably trouble at work, uh, clearly domestic problems with his wife, with whom they were going through a divorce separation, whatever. And so he pulls a woman over and he rapes her in his police car and he gives her his business card. Well, any police officer knows this is not going to go well for your career at this like the least. So he sort of sets in motion purposefully, no turning back kind of scenario for lack of way to put it better. And then he goes into the bank where his wife works in his uniform, in his police car, 
he lines up customers and he shoots and kills a young woman that he doesn't even know. A young mother. A terrible, terrible thing. And then he holds everybody else hostage. And just because it's at a bank, he didn't come in to get money. He didn't come in to bargain. He came in probably ultimately to kill his wife and kill himself. That was smart money would have said that was the most likely uh, outcome for this. And, you know, and set up a, a pretty terrible situation yet with really quality negotiations and listening to him and giving him an opportunity to talk about these problems he was experiencing. It, it brought about where we achieved a peaceful surrender under probably the worst of circumstances. I, I think it's a, a brilliant case to show how despite all the outward signs that indicate this has got to get worse. It nonetheless got turned around by really quality negotiation. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. I very much trumpet that, and I agree with you that it was, it was because of proper negotiation that that didn't turn out worse than it should have. But is that, is that what you see in most of the hostage takers? Is It's usually, I'm, I'm like a cat in a corner, and I have no way out. A lot, of the do people, this. a lot of the people we deal with are expressing a sense of loss, a loss of job, a loss of relationship, a loss of self-esteem. Their emotional cup is overflowing. They have usually a, a limited number of friends or family that, you know, we call it the double whammy. If, if you have problems at work, your family supports you. If you have problems at home, your work supports you. Most of these people don't have either one. And they're engaged in an activity that's highly self-destructive. And they get into something that very often they have no idea how to get out. They didn't plan it that far ahead, or it didn't evolve the way they sort of thought it would. And that's the proverbial foot in the door for us as negotiators to try to lower that emotion. You know, I always, if your listeners can envision a childhood teeter-totter, when emotions are high, symbolized by one end of the teeter-totter, Conversely, rational thinking and behavior are low. And it's a human condition that you can't argue. It's absolute. Emotions right. high, rational behavior low. Our job as negotiators in 90% of the cases we work is first and foremost through that buying of time that you mentioned earlier is to lower that emotional engagement. And when using the teeter totter illustration, when the emotional aspects of it come down, you can see what pops up then the ability to think and behave more rationally. That's basically the process right there. You know, we don't, as negotiators, come up with some brilliant solution that all of a sudden says, you know, the guy says, oh, I never thought of that. That's brilliant. I'll surrender now. It, it's, <laughs> it's basically listening and understanding and acknowledging their point of view, being sincere and genuine. I want to help you get out of this. Not being deceitful. You know, occasionally we have to do that, but that's not our primary tool. We try to develop a relationship with trust and convince these people that the best course of action for them, for the people they're holding, whether they be hostages or, or victims for whom there is no demand made, and it's the best thing for cops. So, you know, it's a win-win-win, but it, it's, it doesn't happen immediately. You know, you don't show up as a negotiator and say, sir, you're being an asshole, and after three or four hours of talking, you're going to surrender, so why don't you just do it now? I mean, it doesn't work that way. We, we have to earn the right through our communication to be of influence. 
And you may have heard that, you know, the FBI uses this behavioral change stairway model that I developed. The goal is, is cooperation. How do we get that? We get that through exerting influence and we get that by building rapport and we get that by, you know, understanding their emotions and we get that through active listening skills, you know, and this is the bread and butter of negotiations and it's proven effective time and time again. Yeah, that's, so that's a great point because I've heard you talk before in saying that in, in one hostage negotiation aspect, I believe it was the prison hostage negotiation where you said you were just completely honest with the other person. And they were, they were kind of taken aback and it, it actually built a rapport. You said, yeah, this is what we're here to do. This is our yeah. goals. Well, you know, it is pretty clear cut. I, I know there's been some, I haven't heard about it quite a long time, but early on we would publish articles in the FBI, mostly to help police officers learn these skills. And some people would say, well, you're, you're wrong to publish this stuff. What if the bad guys get it? And I said, well, I hope they do. I hope they read it. What imagine the snare? The guy says, "I know what you're trying to do, Gary. You're trying to, you're trying to demonstrate that you really care about me and you want to help me." Yep, I'm guilty as charged. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm trying to do. Of course, that's what I want. Yeah, you know, there's no secret here. I think it's best for you not to hurt that woman. If you kill your boss, you think that's going to get your job back? We need to think about this and and let's let's find a way to get out of this predicament. And I want to help you. I don't want to see you get hurt. Yeah, ex exactly. So, do you think? So then the next question, I don't want to harp on, on Waco. I don't think that's the most important thing. It might be the most famous thing for you, but, but I don't think it's yeah. the most important thing you've done. But as far as David Koresh, what, what was he after? He seems as someone who's very charismatic. Some would say a brilliant mind. And you yourself have a brilliant mind being taught by the FBI and, and through your schooling. And so there's that, that sort of headbutting of two high IQs. So, so what was he after? And then what was your process through that negotiation? Well, that's interesting. I don't know if I would classify Koresh as, as brilliant, but he was manipulative and, and he was controlling and he was very... Yeah, that's probably a better term for it. Yeah, and he was very narcissistic. So, you know, in his little religious gathering cult, as some would say, he was the king. He told people what to do, when to do it, how to do it, who to do it with. You know, he had exclusive sexual privileges to most of the women. He fathered children. He was on his little throne in his little world. And all of a sudden now the ATF goes to arrest him. There's a shootout. And now we've got dead people on both sides. And it's a real conundrum to try to get this resolved because he knows when he surrenders, this is no light slap in the hand. This is, this is a serious matter for which he probably would get the death penalty. So, and all he really wanted, his only demand from us essentially was go away and leave us alone. And, you know, the one thing we really could not do. So it became really difficult to give him an opportunity to share his feelings and frustrations. And as you know, those who have some familiarity with Waco, the efforts of my team became afforded to some extent by some elements in the FBI that wanted to take a, a more challenging, more combative stance against him. And that right. tended to undercut what we were doing. But we did get 35 people out alive. I'm, I'm proud of that. They're alive today because of those efforts. But it's a terribly disappointing case in that we didn't get more out and we should have been able to. Right. And, and I would say to you that now I, I watched it live on the news as a young kid, you know, you see the tanks coming over the APCs going and, and that is your view of it, or, or that's my view of it at that point. And there's no really media saying, well, this is everything that led up to it and, and this is what's going on. So it must've been a failure. But do you see Waco as a, as not a failure, but as a success 
I, I mean, it's mixed. You know, I think in society, and it certainly applies to a lot of things beyond Waco, but when you talk with people about Waco, they quickly identify themselves as being of one mind or another. Either it was big, bad, oppressive government came in and purposely did things to kill these people. And that's pure nonsense. Right. Or others might say these are terrible, evil, criminal people. And that's an exaggeration. Most people in there were law-abiding, pretty, pretty naive, perhaps, and, and had subjugated themselves to a very manipulative, narcissistic leader. But as in most things in life, there's an awful lot of gray in there. And, and you know, I've been one of the few critics of the FBI, certainly internal critics of the FBI, because in my view, if you really want to be honest and look at a situation, you can say David Koresh was responsible. But that doesn't mean the FBI didn't make a lot of mistakes. It did. And we had a lot of internal conflict. Hopefully we've learned from that. We certainly made a lot of changes after Waco. I actually got promoted. But, but you know, it, yes, it was a learning process. So was it a success or failure? I mean, I'd ha I guess I'd have to come down on the side of it having been a failure. Because for me, I don't judge my negotiations on we got everybody out. No one was hurt. I base it on did we get everybody out that we could have? And the answer there is clearly no, we didn't. I believe firmly that if we had, if the bosses had been more supportive of the strategy that I, my team was pursuing that proven to be successful, that we could have got a lot more people out alive, perhaps all of them. I don't know, but it was taking time. It was costing an enormous amount of money. There was, you know, extreme external pressure for the FBI to get something done. So there was so many it goes back to the issue I mentioned before, that the more notorious the case, the more public attention to it, the more higher level officials feel compelled to get involved, even if they have no idea what they're doing. You have specially trained people and, and you know, in most cases, in most of my career, particularly as my career went along, when I made a recommendation, the bosses said, well, I guess we ought to listen to this guy because he's got a pretty good track record. But occasionally you run into one of these bosses that thinks he knows everything. And because of what's the old saying, you're not a prophet within your own organization, you know, because right. you, might, you might be several ranks below the ultimate decision maker and they decide they're going to go another direction. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons the FBI after Wago made some significant changes in training its decision makers. And see, that's why I think it's a success. Well, you know, because of that reason and because you went on and, and I, I'll ask you to speak on this a little bit more. You went on to Montana, right, and and became the hostage negotiator yeah. for uh, what was going on in Montana at the time. I led the team again. I mean, from before Waco all the way to the end of my career, I, I was in charge of all the FBI's negotiations. So what happened is three years after Waco, now we have a new director, Louis Free, and he says early on, I'm in a conference call with him with the on-scene command staff, and he basically says, Gary, are you there? You know, we're out in Montana in a motorhome. I said, yes, sir. And he says, I want you to know I'm in no rush for this to end. I want this to end the right way. And it was a compelling message to the decision makers around me that he wasn't going to put up with any overly aggressive, unnecessarily militaristic approaches, that we were going to do this a thoughtful, creative way. And we did. It took 85 days, but everyone came out alive. No reputational damage to the FBI, no lawsuits. Yeah, you're really talking a cost of daily per diem. Yeah. The agents mean, that are there. You know, if you, if you look back at Waco and the, the damage, it, institutional damage it cost to the FBI's reputation, in addition to the cost, that, that far exceeds any 
amount of money expended in, in the process of, of managing these. It is expensive. I mean, in Waco was a million dollars a day. I mean, that, in 1993, that, that's a fair chunk of change. A lot of money. It's a lot of money. And, you know, and people on the outside, again, they say, what? what's taking the FBI so long? This guy's a kook. He's a nut. Go in there and, and get it resolved. You know, it reminds me on a much smaller scale of a case, I believe was in Chicago, I mean, 30, 40 years ago, where this guy was threatening suicide on a major expressway through Chicago. And the, and the mayor calls up the police. He says, well, get this over with. And the chief says, well, we're talking to him. We're doing the best we can. He says, well, you're tying up traffic. And the chief says, what are you, are you telling me to kill him? Is that what you want me to do? No, 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 no. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying getting it over with. Well, Unless you come up with some ideas, Mr. Mayor, we're doing the best we can. You've got to, you've got to be strong against that sort of uninformed pressure. So is there a process to educate leaders on that? Well, as, as I suggested after Waco, the FBI, it defended itself from external criticism, but internally there was a clear awareness that, you know, we had the hostage rescue team, tactical team, we had the negotiators, we had all these specialized units that responded and were quite good at their jobs typically, but we didn't, we didn't train our bosses to make decisions. You know, we just assumed because they were generals in the FBI context that they knew how to do these things. Well, really? How often does, you know, somebody could have 10 careers and never work a case like this, you know? So what's the basis upon which they're making their decisions? Do they know who to listen to? Do they know you know, enough about behavior and, and, and they thought through the consequences and the potential risks of, of taking precipitous action. You know, we always set the, we, we called it the action criteria in the FBI, you know, before you do something, what are the, what are the possibilities? What, you know, what, what can happen? What can go right? What can go wrong? How do we know the difference? How do we know if it'll work? Can we defend in the public sphere or in a court of law, the actions we took? You know, if the perpetrator is engaged in clear violence that we can articulate, the public will support us if we take action, even if it doesn't end well. But if, if we just go in because we're tired, we're hungry, we're wet, we're cold, he's an asshole, it doesn't cut it. We may still be successful in those situations, but if they end badly, you know, now we have to justify, why did you go in today? What changed from the day before? Can you articulate clearly that your failure to go in would have further endangered the people? Because if you can't make that case, you better think long and hard before you do it. So when you're going through that process, are you guys bringing in like a profiler? Well, the profiler is the negotiation. We always deploy profilers in these big cases and they become an adjunct to the negotiation team. They don't negotiate. For example, there was always two profilers there and I would occasionally turn to them and say, what are you hearing? You know, uh, we spent a lot of time today talking to Steve Snyder, Koresh's number one guy. Now, wh what are you picking up on him? What's your sense of how we're relating to him in our conversations? And they would give me their inputs, and then I would decide whether or not to incorporate any of those thoughts into the negotiation strategy. Sometimes I did, and a lot of times I, I didn't. You know, it just depends on how we felt. But the actual communication is, is, is a negotiation, and we differentiate that from the profiler. All right. Right. Got that. When you're going through now, you, you said, I think you said you spoke with Koresh for 18 hours at, at one time. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was that long, but yes, the first, I, I was one of the first negotiators to get there that evening and the rest of the team had shown up yet. So I ended up relieving the people who've been speaking to him those first hours. And, and I ended up talking to Koresh through the night. And, and frankly, I was kind of optimistic because I knew he was wounded. He was uh, having some discomfort from, from that wound, but, and he was very angry at ATF, but I felt 
you know, he's someone we could talk to. And of course we tried to project it. All right, your problem was with the ATF. Now we're going to come in at the FBI. We're going to make sure this is thoroughly investigated. You claimed it. They fired first and their actions were inappropriate. Fine. We can't solve it here, but that's for a court of law to do. But the first thing we had to do is get everybody out of there safe and alive and don't want it to get worse. So it's, that's generally the tact we took. And, and we had some success with that. So that is interesting. So you did uh, distinguish yourself up from the ATF as you were. Yeah, and it's a delicate thing because when I was there, I get it was all ATF agents in the in the room that we were negotiating from. And and before I got on the phone with Koresh, I said, listen, guys, I'm, I'm going to represent to David Koresh that I'm different from you. And I'm not criticizing you. I'm not agreeing with him that his views of what you did from his point of view, I'm not doing any of that. I'm just trying to convince him that, you know, he can trust me to look at this objectively and, and come in as almost like an intermediary and, you know, had some success with that. Not as much as I would have liked, but that's the approach we took. And, and they understood. I said, you know, I'm not going to slam dunk ATF, but, but I'm not here to, you know, to defend your, your actions or to speak on your behalf. I'm, I'm here to come in and separate the warring parties. Right. For the next thing, cause I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep harping on, on Waco cause I don't think. It, it might be what you're most famous for, but I, I don't think it was one of the the uh, one of your crowning achievements. Even though you did a lot of great work there, so what would you consider your greatest achievement? Well, I think um, I mean I've worked so many interesting and challenging cases, but you mentioned it already. I think Montana, you know, three years after Waco, coming as it were on the heels of Waco and the public kind of waiting for things to go bad again. I mean, the press was out there in mass, expected to see another fire, another tragic shootout between government and, and, and people that oppose the government. So I think to take a more thoughtful approach aimed at lowering those emotions and getting people to think more clearly and giving them options and treating them respectfully, I think I, w- I was allowed to lead the team to do that. And it it came true. And so I, I, I guess I would say in that context, I'm as proud of that as, as, you know, any, any of the other cases I worked. Awesome. Thank you for that. I'll go back to my career. So I was, I worked with, I worked at Bragg with, with special operations and going, you know, day in and day out, 18 hours a day for however many days, sometimes going 24 hours on shift for three or four days. But in your your book, you mentioned that I believe it was a superior told you if you're at work, be at work, but if you're at home, be at home, be with your family. And, and so my question is in the day, in today's day in COVID, where there's a lot of work for home and there's a lot of people who are, are striving to work remotely so that they can be home. What would you say is the best way to kind of do that work life, work life balance or work and family balance in today's day? You know, I think in any day, life is kind of cruel in that it gives you certain responsibilities at a time in life that all come together. You're a parent, you're a spouse, you're climbing up in the career, whatever it is that you do, and something has to give. You know, you just, right. you, you, you just can't be all things to all people all the time. Now, you throw into it a fairly demanding career like, like mine. I mean, in the FBI, we work a 10-hour day. Then you add on an hour commute each way. So I'm gone from home 12 hours a day. Right. And that's when I wasn't traveling. That's a normal day. And then I'd get home in my job and it was a fairly common thing to get phone calls at all hours of the night. And particularly when I had 
team members deployed to South America on a kidnapping or Asia. Well, you know, they're calling you at two or three in the morning and you can't say, you know, this is really an inconvenient time. It's interrupted with my family because, you know, you've sent this person to Manila in a very tense situation and they're looking for your guidance and your input and your agreement with their strategy. And you can't very well say, well, you know, this is really cutting into my sleep time. So, you know, I, I have to probably admit that I don't know that I had the proper right life balance until I, my kids were grown and I was retired, you know, that it was much easier. There were less factors a- afoot, but you know, it's tough. And, you know, and, and I feel, you know, I, I have daughters who are both in schools, teachers, you know, and you know, it's, it's a challenge. You know, my son was a Navy SEAL, did sort of the things that you did. So I see the struggles, the daily demands that they have in their lives, you know, and you know, it's tough. So you try to find a balance. When I would send guys overseas and they come home after a three week deployment and the government's very strict about taking leave and so forth and so on. Oh, right. Say, yeah. I would say, listen, I don't want to see you for the rest of the week. Go spend time with your family and we'll take care of you on the books. You know, if the FBI wants to come after me now and prosecute me for that, that's fine. But, you know, you have to take care of your people. And, and, you know, the FBI, I got to tell you, the FBI had this wonderful saying, I suppose they still do. They said, you know, family comes first. What a crock of shit that is. The family <laughs> never did. Yeah. The family and the same in the military, you know, the family never comes first. The needs of the job always take precedence. And then you've got to figure out how to do it. I can't tell you how many times we lived in the same neighborhood, in the same house for 30 years. And how many times friends and neighbors would shovel my driveway because I'm off, you know, some exotic place doing something. And, you know, it was great that we had those kinds of friendships. And I, I tried to be a good dad and be involved in coaching teams and so forth and so on. But there's just things you miss. And that's part of the life. My, if you talk to my kids, I think they would tell you how proud they were of my career. But they certainly paid a price for it at various times as well. So I, I don't have brilliant advice for, for people. And I actually think that working from home and the accessibility we all have through our phones and our computers actually is bad for them. Because in the old, older days, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was a little bit harder for your private time to be interrupted. Now it's, you know, people work nights, weekends, you got email, they're checking their email, they're doing stuff. And it's oh, that's easy. a very great point because as, as a platoon sergeant in, in the last decade, I had the same issues, you know, you, yep. if you don't answer your phone, they're going to, somebody's going to email and say, I know you have your phone on you. Yep. Why are you not answering? Yep. But also your family is important. You know, and everybody says, well, just go home and turn your phone off. And, you know, again, I wasn't able to do that in, in my career. It, it's just, you do what you have to do. You try to be the best person you can. And you have to realize that you can't be super this and super that. I, I used to laugh. You know, there was a saying that came into play some years ago about super mom. You know, today's mom has to do everything. And that's true. But, that is very true. but we've kind of forgotten about super dad. Because for my generation, you know, my father, I don't even know if he knew where the kitchen was. Because of the times and the nature of relationships, you go back to your grandparents before that. You know, the man was the king of the castle and the wife was expected to do all these things on her own. Well, you get to my generation and now we're pitching in much more. And then I watch my son-in-laws, you know, and they put me to shame. They're far more engaged and supportive. So I think these are all good, good trends. But I think the most important thing is to know you're not going to live up to your expectations. You're, you're in your own mind. You're going to be less than you really should be. 
in terms of being that supportive family person. Well, that that is excellent. And Gary, thank you for taking taking your time. And I'll have one more final question for yeah, you. Yeah, that's fine. The, the final question is, throughout your career, you've been able to travel all over. Mm-hmm. And you can correct me if I'm wrong on that. What was your favorite place to be? I think um, probably the trip I enjoyed the most was my first trip to South Africa, probably in the early 90s. And it was right after, you know, and I'm, I'm a bit of a world affairs history buff. And I was quite aware of the, you know, the history of South Africa and the, 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 the racial issues and the, the damage from apartheid. And what had happened was back in the, the early 90s, the South Africans wrote a letter asking for training material on negotiations. And one of the officials at FBI said, no, we're not doing anything for South Africa. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're not supporting them because of the apartheid and all that. Right. And at that time, I sent them everything I had. I said, <laughs> I said, I just disregarded that order. And I said, you know, they're trying to do something good here. I don't see a downside to this. Well, little did I know that even though they were unable to get training from anywhere outside the world, they used these materials to build a huge negotiation team, hundreds and hundreds of people across the country. So some years later, they asked me to come over and teach a course. And they treated me like I was the Messiah over there. You know, that they said, this is the guy when nobody in the world would give us anything. He gave us all this material that is the basis of our training. So they traded, treated me and my colleagues in, in such a special and endearing way. And to see the beginnings of the races mix in this training, the whites, the blacks, and what they called the coloreds there, which is mostly East Indians, and how they were trying to transition into a better society. It's a struggle that still goes on there. But I found that not only just from seeing the amazing animals in Kruger National Park and everything, but spending the time with those police officers as they were making that transition, I think was the most memorable trip for me. Oh, that's awesome. Gary, thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, my uh, I love this conversation. It was awesome. Uh, I love all the insights into it. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We would like to wholeheartedly thank Mr. Nessner for joining us for this episode of Insightful Inquiries. You can find Gary on LinkedIn and through his website, GaryNessner.com. His book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, was the inspiration for the miniseries Waco and is available in hardback, paperback, and audio format wherever you purchase books. The miniseries Waco is available for purchase on Amazon Prime Video, as well as other paid-to-watch streaming services. Gary is also available to law enforcement, educational institutions, and others through his website for Skype-type presentations. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to sign up for our private intelligence community at oakwindanalytics.com.